Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. It says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, if you were with us the last few weeks, we've been teaching online on the Facebook Live or caught up on the website or YouTube channel, you've hopefully caught on that the obvious undertone of Jesus' teaching in the last few weeks has been forgiveness. Now you say, wait a minute, I don't remember messages on forgiveness. Well, go back with me real quick to Matthew 18, verses 12 through 15. And if you look closely, you're going to see it. It's going to be an undertone of forgiveness, both God forgiving us and our forgiving each other. It's been there, but it's been subtle. It's about to get blatant. In Matthew 18, verses 12 through 15, Jesus says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother." Now, do you see the undertone there of forgiveness? In order for the master to have us be forgiven or saved, the lost to be found, there's a forgiveness issue. The relationship issue between brothers, if your brother sins against you, you go tell him. If he listens, you've gained your brother. But there's a forgiveness issue there. And that's what's been there, but it's about to get even deeper now. But... The Jewish rabbis taught that God only forgave three times. So if you forgive, forgave anybody more than three times, it was unnecessary because God only forgives three times. Now, people say, well, where did the Jewish rabbis get that? They actually got it from the scriptures. They incorrectly interpreted the scriptures. But let me show you where it came from. Go to Amos chapter 1. Amos chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, and verse 13. So it's 3, 6, 9, 11, and 13 in Amos chapter 1. All right, in Amos chapter 1, verse 3, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they've threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Jump down to verse 6 
Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile whole people to deliver them up to Edom. Verse 9, for thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of the brotherhood. And verse 11, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and so on. Verse 13, for thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. So the rabbi took this passage and they said, you see, God forgave it three times, but the fourth time he didn't. Therefore, God only forgives three times. And if you forgive anybody more than three times, it's unnecessary because God only forgives three times. Now, Peter is sensing that Jesus has been teaching and desiring them to have the same heart of forgiveness that God does. So Peter in the passage back in Matthew, he asks if seven times is a good number, by the way, real quick, as I get back into this, that's the danger of taking a passage of scripture and saying, well, that's how it's always done. You see the danger of that? You always need to, whenever you come to any interpretation of scripture, check it in the context and then check that interpretation that you think you've pulled out of the context. Check it against the whole of scripture. If what you have interpreted from that context matches with the whole of scripture, you probably have the right interpretation because it matches with the whole book. God wrote the whole book. If what you pull out of Amos chapter 1 doesn't match with the rest of the book, guess what? It's not the right interpretation. As you're about to see, saying that God only forgives three times does not match with the rest of the book. And so you're going to see that. But again, like I said, Peter's sensing that Jesus is desiring them to have the same heart of forgiveness that God does. And so he thinks, well, what if I forgive seven times. Now, don't miss what I'm about to say and how I word this question. Is seven times a good limit to my forgiveness? Did you, did you catch that? Exactly. It's, it, it, but listen to what Peter's really asking. Exactly. Even though he's gone from three to seven, he's still saying, what is the limit? Where do I have? Where can I stop forgiving? And that'll help you understand God's answer and Jesus's answer. Peter's been asking, what's the limit to my forgiveness of someone? Jesus says there should be no limit. That's why his answer is 70 times seven or 77 times, depending on which translation you have. Either, go real quick to Luke chapter 17. You'll see it. In Luke chapter 17, look at verses 3 and 4. Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, Jesus says this. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So as often as he sins... As often as he repents, forgive him. So God's word does not teach that we're only to forgive three times and that's it. By the way, does the Bible teach, using the whole of scripture, that you're only to offer forgiveness if they've asked for it? 
No, remember Jesus is on the cross and he was crying out, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. The offer of forgiveness was there before they even asked for it. We see Stephen being stoned and he says, Father, forgive them. Don't hold this sin against them. The Bible teaches that God's forgiveness is already offered. It still needs to be received. But the offer of forgiveness, he's not up there with his arms crossed saying, as soon as you ask me, then I'll decide. And if you repent, then I'll forgive. No, the offer of forgiveness is there It's through repentance that it's received. And that's what we need to understand. So Jesus tells them a parable in Matthew, back in Matthew chapter 18. He tells them a parable to illustrate the point of how much God has forgiven us who have received his offer of forgiveness and how we too should pass that unlimited forgiveness on to others. He tells of a person who owed 10,000 talents. Now, we got to do some math to help us really understand this, because we've all heard this story and we hear 10,000 talents, but it doesn't really sink into us. Does anybody even know how much a talent is? I'm sorry? Nope, that's a denarius is one day's wage. We'll get to a denarius in a little bit. A talent is equal to 20 years salary. One talent is equal to 20 years salary. All right, you with me now? The average common laborer's average salary for 20 years is one talent. The guy owed 10,000 talents. How many years salary does he owe? Come on, there's got to be some math people in here. 200,000 years of salary. By the way, um, I, for the fun of it, just figured, okay, let's just take someone with an average salary of 50000 a year nowadays. And many of us make more than that. But if, say, 50000 a year, I did that times 200000 and my calculator couldn't handle it. The one on my phone, it just said 10E, which meant error. Again, you math people might be able to have a way to pull that up. It's in the billions, folks. Jesus tells a story about a man who owes a debt. And when he said 10,000 talents, it's like us today saying there was a man who literally owed a gazillion billion dollars. Because let's think about this for a second. If you owe 200,000 years salary to somebody and you took your whole year's salary every single year, To pay back, you didn't pay for your rent, your food, gas, whatever. You took your whole salary to pay this person back. How many years would it take you to pay them back? 200,000. That's an unpayable debt. That's the number Jesus gives. This man owed a debt that he would never, ever, ever be able to pay. Now, go to verse 26 in Matthew 18 and look closely at what the man says to the king. He says, have patience. He fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. It's important that I want you to see this because you're going to see those words almost exactly come up again later in the story. He says, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Is that possible for him to do? He thinks he's going to try his best. I'll pay you back. That's a joke. We've already seen that this is impossible. But then verse 27 says, Out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the whole debt. Now, I put in my notes here, instead of pity, let's call it mercy and grace. I need you to help me here. 
because we're going somewhere with this tonight and the next few weeks. Why is mercy mercy? When, when God gives us mercy, what is he actually giving us? Or not giving us? He's definitely given forgiveness, but why is it mercy? Okay, no, that's the other side. He's not giving us what we do deserve. He definitely loves us. But he's offering us mercy because we owe the debt. I'm going to show you this in Scripture. We owe the debt to him. And his mercy is not giving us what we actually deserve. Why is it grace? Because on top of that, what he gives us, not only in the forgiveness and the mercy, and as you're going to see in our next few weeks study, the reward that goes with it for eternity is what we don't deserve. He keeps us from getting what we do deserve, and he gives us what we don't deserve. You want to talk about pity, it's mercy and grace. It's, let's be honest, folks. Our salvation is totally a gift. Yet, let's be honest. The world still thinks they can try to pay it off. We even as Christians still fall into that mindset sometimes when we sin, like, God, I'm sorry, I'll make it up to you. I'll... We're going to be getting there this next few weeks. I've already written Bible studies kind of ahead, and I know where we're going. But I just want to, I'm going to ask you to do a little homework between now and next week. I want you to write this down, and I want you in your personal quiet time to ask God to, in his timing, a little bit each day if he chooses, to help you to understand the depth of what he's actually done for us in salvation. I'm going to tell you to ask him to not do it all at once, because I honestly think if we really fully understood it, we would die. I really honestly think that if we, in our state that we're in right now, fully understood and comprehended all that there is that is in our salvation and what is to come, I think we would die. But the Bible teaches that God desires us to get to know him a little bit more, that we would begin to understand the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of the love of God, that we would understand the hope to which he's called us, the glorious inheritance in the saints and the mighty power that's available to us who believe. The scripture teaches that God desires a little bit more each day to reveal to us the depth. And let me say something to you. If you're serious about this homework assignment and you actually say, God, would you, in your timing, knowing me as your child and what I can handle and what I can't, but I'm going to ask you, would you begin to help me as I spend time in your word and spend time with you? Would you begin to help me understand a little bit more and a little bit more really the depth and the wonder and the beauty and the awesomeness of what it is that I've received in my salvation and not only that, but what's to come, all this. Would you reveal this to me? Let me say something to you folks. The more you really start to understand all that you have been given, all of the things you struggle with, you'll watch them little by little start to fall away because in the comparison to really understanding what you've been given in this salvation, the man in this story doesn't understand. He thinks he can still pay it. Now, we too had a debt of sin. I'm going to give you a couple of passages to begin your little homework assignment. We too had a debt of sin that we could not pay. We were all under the curse of sin and the penalty of that curse was what? Death. But God, through Christ, forgave us of having to pay that debt. Go with me to Romans chapter 6. Some of you probably grew up with the Roman road, and you know this verse from learning how to share the gospel with the Roman road. But look at verse 23 again with me, and look closely at what it says. Romans 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, 
But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Folks, we all owed a debt that there was no way possible we were ever going to pay off. And if you're saved, it's simply because God in his pity, his mercy and his grace, by his will, chose to give us this forgiveness. It's offered to us. Those who receive it will be evidenced, as we're going to see this week and next, the evidence of our really receiving it will become clear. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Look at verses 13 through 15. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God, sorry, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You had a debt, and it was paid by Jesus. Now, years ago, I heard about a preacher preaching about how the fact that Jesus' forgiveness that he gives us pays for our sins in the past and the present and the future, how they're all covered. And he went home after preaching that one time, and his wife literally said to him, she goes, I know you've been saying that for years, and I've heard that as a kid, but I still struggle with the fact that my sins for tomorrow are already forgiven. Does anybody else still struggle with that a little bit? And the preacher turns to his wife. This is a true story, by the way. It's not a preacher story. This is a real story. It really did happen. The preacher turns to his wife and he says, let me ask you a question. When Jesus died on the cross for your sins, were your sins past, present, or future? They were all future at that moment. The Bible says it was paid for at that time. So all of your sins were future when they were forgiven, were they not? See, we think about, oh, I got forgiven in 1973. No, you were forgiven at the cross. And what was forgiven and paid for at the cross was received as your gift at whatever day. For me, it was September of 1973. But when he forgave me, all my sins were already future at that time. That means even the ones tomorrow and the next day are already forgiven. Let that truth sink in. But unfortunately, in Jesus' story, this same man that had been forgiven the unpayable debt went and found somebody who owed him some money. And even though the one who owed him asked for the same mercy with the same words that he had just used, he wouldn't forgive his fellow servant. Look again at verses 28 and following, back in Matthew chapter 18. In verse 28, when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, the words are going to sound pretty familiar. Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, again, to really understand what's going on in this story, we got to do some more math. Doing the math helped us with the 10,000 talents, didn't it? It all of a sudden exploded to what Jesus was saying. Doing the math here will help too. Chris, I'm going to ask you because you're ready with the right answer now. One denarius is what? One day's wage for common labor. By the way, don't just take me and Chris's word for it. Look at Matthew chapter 20 and look at verse 2. 
verses 1 and 2. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them out into his vineyard. We're going to get to that story next week. But the common day's laborers pay was one denarius. So this man owed him a hundred denarius, which is about a hundred days pay. Let's just round it around to three months. Okay, let's just say he was owed three months salary. Now, that's not a small amount. Three months salary is a pretty good amount. But in comparison to 200,000 years salary, it's a joke now, isn't it? If we just looked at three months salary, if I came in here without any backstory and told you about a man who owed somebody else three months salary, this employer hasn't paid his employee for three months. We would all get upset because in our mind, that's a lot of money. But when you compare that number to 200,000 years salary, it's embarrassing to get upset about it. If you've been forgiven 200,000 years salary, you're going to get upset about someone owing you three, three months salary. Do you understand? This is what Jesus is saying in his story. Now, the Bible says that the king got word, verses 31 through 35, the king gets word that the first man who had been forgiven the debt would not forgive the other man. And the Bible says he was furious. By the way, who's telling this story? Okay, who is Jesus? He's the king. And so Jesus is telling us God's heart and attitude towards someone that's been offered this forgiveness but then won't share it. He's furious. Now, I'm going to bring out three reasons from the scriptures why the king is furious. The first one is this. Not forgiving others when we've been forgiven so much shows that we truly don't appreciate how much we've been forgiven. We're ungrateful. For the sake of time, I'm not going to have you go there and read the story, but write down Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 47. Luke 7, 36 through 47. Jesus is in this Pharisee's house, and this woman who was a prostitute and a sinner comes in because she heard he was there, and she's weeping and asking for forgiveness, and she's wiping his feet with her hair and her tears. And the owner of the house, who's a Pharisee, he thinks to himself, if this guy really were a prophet, he'd know what kind of a woman was touching him. She's a sinner. And Jesus, knowing his thoughts, says, let me ask you a question. He said, there's two people who were forgiven debts. One were forgiven a little debt. One was forgiven a bigger debt. Which one's going to love the one that forgave them more. And the Pharisee says, well, the one who had been forgiven the greater debt. And he says, you've answered correctly. And this woman, because her sins were great, loves much. And those who have been forgiven little love little. Those who have been forgiven much loves much. And if you understand the scriptures, we've all been forgiven a little or much. Much. And when we're not willing to share that forgiveness that we've received, it really shows that we're ungrateful for what it is that we've been given. There's another reason. Those of us who have been forgiven much by our Heavenly Father are commanded to demonstrate the Father's love by sharing the forgiveness that we have received. I'm going to show you two places. It's more than two. But I'm going to show you two places in Scripture. The Bible actually says that the King commands us now to share that same love and forgiveness that we've been given. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Let me show you. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, and then we'll go to Colossians. Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 32. 
The Bible says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. In the same way in which God's forgiven you, that's the way you're to forgive everyone else. There's no limit, and it's free. It doesn't have to be earned. Jump over to Colossians. You're in Ephesians. Go turn right to Philippians and then go over to Colossians. Go to chapter two, 3, chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, the scripture says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also, what's that next word? Must. Yeah, the word actually means must forgive. You must forgive. By the way, it's the same word that says there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It's that same word that's used where you must be born again. Must means what? Must. <laughs> you, you have to. So we've been commanded by our Father. For those of us who have received this forgiven, as Christ has forg forgiven us, those who Christ has forgiven you, you're to forgive others. Now listen closely. There's another part to this same thing here. When the man who had been forgiven didn't share that same attitude shown to him by the Father, he tried to make himself more important than the king. That's really what you're doing. When you're willing to say, well, God's forgiven me of my sins, but I'm not going to forgive you, what you're really saying is, God forgives. I won't. You're making yourself more important than God. Do you really want to go there? Do you really want to meet him face to face one day having that attitude? The Bible says he's furious with those of us who have been forgiven this great amount and aren't willing to forgive our brother or sister or anyone the little in comparison. There's a third reason. And this is a scary one, and I'm just going to let the Scripture speak. It's not my job to determine who's saved and who's not saved. Please hear me. I know we all wrestle with forgiveness in, in different ways and different times in our life, but I want you to hear the Scriptures, and I want to let the Spirit of God speak to you. There's something else here in this story. By not forgiving his fellow servant, he was showing that he had never truly received the forgiveness offered by the king and thereby was still owing the debt. Was this man forgiven and then he lost his salvation when the king threw him into the jail to go pay it all back? No, he had never been saved in the first place. The forgiveness is offered. And the man acted like he had received it, but he never did because if he had really received it, how would he have acted toward his fellow servant? He would have been willing to forgive because he had it. He had already received such grace and mercy. He would have shared it. And that's why in the story, the man is thrown into the jail by the king until he should pay the whole debt. But by the way, he's never going to. That's why hell's eternal, by the way, folks. There's people out there that try to teach that people that go to hell, if they go, they're not sure there's hell. But if they go, they'll extinguish after a while. No, the Bible's very, very clear that the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Hell is eternal. And you know why? Because when someone chooses not to receive the forgiveness that is offered through Jesus Christ, they're really saying, I'll pay for it myself. God says, go ahead. You'll be paying for it forever and ever and ever because you can never pay it off. If you could go to hell for a period of time and then no longer you've paid it off, 
you'll never pay it off. And that's why hell's eternal. Let me just let the scripture speak, though. Go to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at verse 12, and then we're going to go to verses 14 and 15. In Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he teaches them how to pray, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus teaches us to pray, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. By the way, that's in the Lord's Prayer. Jump down to verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I don't need to add anything to that. Go to 1 John chapter 4. Go to 1 John chapter 4, look at verses 7 and 8. First John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God, because God is love. Jump down to verse 19. We're going to read 19, 20, and 21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, where's that word again? Must love also his brother. Folks, there's three things that come out of this story about why the king was furious. One, by not forgiving his fellow servant after having been forgiven that huge debt, he showed that he was ungrateful. Two, We've been commanded to forgive. And when we don't, we're making ourselves more important than God. And three, if you're unwilling to forgive, the Bible says you've never really received that forgiveness and you still owe the debt. I don't think we want to go there, do we? In comparison, some of you have things that have been done to you in the past by a parent, by a sibling, by a boss, by a coworker, by whatever. And you know what? If we were to just talk about what they did to you, we could get everybody in the room riled up. But if you think that's a big deal in comparison to what God's forgive you, forgiven you, you really don't fully understand what you've been given in your salvation. That's why I want you to begin on a daily basis to spend time saying, Lord, as I spend time in your word, open my eyes to the depth of what's really been given me. We're going to talk about this some more as we get into the following weeks in our study. So through this story, we see that Jesus told, we see that forgiveness has no limit, but must be shared without limit to others as evidence that we have truly received God's forgiveness. Write this one down. Look at it later on. Matthew chapter 7, verse 2 says this. With the same measure you judge, it'll be measured to you. How you treat others is how God's going to treat you. Now, go back to Matthew chapter 19 and look at verses 1 through 12, and I'm not going to read it to you. You know why? Because we would be studying this passage again. I know you don't remember because it happened back in January 8th and January 9th of 2019. Okay. But back when we were studying Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 32, we did a whole hour study on Jesus' teaching on divorce. 
And as a part of that teaching on divorce, we came and studied this section of Scripture, Matthew 19, verses 1, and, uh, 1 through 12. Now, for those of you that weren't here back in 2019 in January, for the Wednesday night group, it would have been January 9th. And you would say, Jim, I really want to know what God has to say about divorce. And by the way, I want you to, if you've never seen this study, it'll surprise you. Because we dealt with marriage and remarriage and forgiveness and God remarrying Israel. When the scripture says, if you, re, if you divorce somebody, you're never to remarry them. And we're, we get into all that. It's an amazing, fun study. If you want to be a part and you want to hear that study, go to our website, Just a Preacher ministries.org and go to the recordings section and then go to Bible studies then go to the Matthew Bible study and look like I said either January 8th which is of 2019 of the Tuesday study or January 9th which is the Wednesday study of 2019 and look at Matthew chapter 5 verses 31 through 32 and that whole hour study will be there and with that we're done with Matthew 19 1 through 12 isn't that amazing you can unbuckle because that was the fastest you've ever gone through the scriptures with me. Um, but now look at Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15. Oh, by the way, if you were watching online, we covered those verses last week. So we're done with those. We're all ready to Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. That's where we're going to go now. Go to Matthew 19, verses 16 through 30. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first now, Jesus has been teaching them that salvation and forgiveness from God is totally by God's grace and mercy. And since we cannot ever pay God back for the debt that we owed because of our sin, we hopefully should realize that we can never earn or achieve salvation by our own merit or works. Right? Hopefully you got that. But I'm going to do something tonight just for the fun of it. I'm going to take you to a passage of scripture many of you can quote. And we're going to look at it. But then we're going to go to the verses prior to it and reread the context and then reread that section. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verses 8 and 9 with me. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. Many of us can quote it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, go back to chapter 2, verses 1 and following. And let's look at the context. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. No, I wasn't. I wasn't that bad of a person. I grew up in the church. Yeah, I know I needed to receive Jesus, but I really wasn't that bad. Um, no, look again at the next verse. Among whom we, some of us, all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let me tell you, if you still fall into thinking that you're really not as bad as the person next to you, and we all have that temptation sometimes to fall, fall into that thinking, you haven't fully understood the depth of what it is that you've been given in the mercy and the grace of God. And I'm going to ask you to ask him to begin to help you understand it a little bit more each day. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. When did he love us? After we said yes and received forgiveness? No, he loved us before. When we were dead, he loved us. Remember Romans chapter 5 says, when we were his enemies, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us then. That forgiveness, that love is there ahead of time. When he made us, when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, before I get back to verses 8 and 9, let me just point out to you in the next few weeks, so we're going to take a look at rewards in heaven because this section that we're looking at in Matthew 19, 16 through 30 kind of hints at it where he says in the world to come, you're going to sit on thrones and anyone that's done this and this life is going to receive a hundredfold. We're going to start getting into reward in heaven and all that kind of stuff. But let me let this truth sink into you ahead of time to get you ready for it. Not only is your salvation totally a gift of God, Whatever reward you get in heaven is all totally a gift of God as well. You know why? Because you're only going to be rewarded for what? What he's done through you. Not, you're not only incapable of saving yourself, you're incapable of doing anything good after salvation. And any good that you do, he did it through you. Remember, he's the vine, we're the branches. He's the one producing it through us. That's why we'll have no trouble taking our crowns and laying them at his feet. Even the reward, and there's going to be great reward, and we're going to deal next week if we get into it time-wise. We're going to deal with the struggle between Jesus telling us to store up treasure in heaven, yet at the same time, he's teaching us to have an attitude that says, oh, don't think for a second, you earned it. It's going to be that balance, and we're going to wrestle with that a little bit in the weeks to come. Go ahead. So we're rewarded for the surrender that we give him. Yes. You got it. Look again at verse 7. We're already seated in the heavenly realms with Christ, which makes your head hurt, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. You see that? In other words, he's not going to be saying, look what Jim did. Look what Glenn did. He's going to say, look what I did. It's all going to point to him. Again, I don't think we fully grasp all that's included in what's going on. Why? Because it's by grace that we've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. But unfortunately, the Jews had been taught that you earned salvation by doing good deeds and giving alms. So the rich were closer to God than the poor because they could give more money. And since they were rich, it was obvious that God was pleased with them since he was blessing them. That's what the Jews taught. You get closer to God by doing good deeds. That's why this rich young ruler comes and says, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? The Jewish teachers, the, the religious leaders were teaching that you earn salvation by being good and being righteous and doing good deeds. And one of the biggest ones is giving money to the church and to the temple and giving alms. That's why it was a big deal. And they would parade and trumpet when they did it. And the rich would get closer to God because they were able to give more. Remember, Jesus blows that all up and we'll deal with that next week when he points out the widow giving her two pennies and how she gave more than the rest of them. We'll get into that later on. But at the same time, they were also taught that if you were rich, it was because you were righteous and God was blessing you. And the more righteous you were, the more rich you'd get. Now, is that good teaching? No, it's not. But you know what's sad? That teaching's out today, isn't it? Aren't there the health and wealth preachers out there? They're teaching that if you walk with God, you'll become rich and you won't be sick. And they teach the same thing. It's being taught today, even though it goes against Scripture. Go with me real quick to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let me just kind of remind you of a few things real quick and how the Scriptures teach that that is incorrect theology. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 3. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, it says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ in the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, woman of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. In our house, Becky and I have learned over the years and we've taught our kids, when it comes to money, what do we say about money? It's only money. It's just a tool. And once we stop looking at money as the be-all and end-all and it's just money, it's just a tool... We give it away. If God says give it, we give it away. If we need to get something, spend the money. But what if I run out? It's only money. It's nothing. It's just a tool. And once we let it no longer have a control over us, it's been amazing to see how God's freed us up in that area. It's just a tool. It's just money. It's only money. It's, just big, it's no big deal. If we do what God's asked us to do, he's going to provide. It's just money. And when we had that attitude, all of a sudden we've been set free. That doesn't mean God's going to make us millionaires. But I'll tell you one thing, everything we need, we got. We have no lack. That's why Paul said, I know what it is to have plenty and to be in want. I've learned the secret. I can do everything I'm supposed to do through Christ who gives me strength. That's the secret of contentment. It's only money. Go to chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, 
nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for when? For the future, heaven. We're going to get to that in the weeks to come. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You can write it down later on and study it for your, write it down now, look at it later on, because time-wise, I need to keep moving. In James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, the Bible's very, very clear that we're not to show favoritism to the rich over the poor in our churches. Actually, the Bible says that those who are poor in this world have been given richness in faith. They're dependent on God. That's why Jesus, and we'll get to that next week, says it's harder for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into heaven, which, by the way, totally blew up the disciples' minds. They're like, this goes against everything we've been taught our whole lives. Now, because of time, write down Mark 10, 17 through 31, and Luke 18, 18 through 30. Mark 10, 17 through 31. And Luke 18, 18 through 30, that's Mark's account of the rich young ruler's story and Luke's account of the rich young ruler's story. I usually have us read those as well to get a fuller picture of what's going on. But don't feel bad. The Tuesday night group didn't have me read it to them either because time-wise, we needed to keep moving. But as you're going to see as you read all three accounts, Jesus redirects this man's use of the term good to point out the fact that no one is good but God. Now, when Jesus says, there's, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. People have tried to say, see, Jesus said he wasn't God. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. He doesn't say, I'm not God. And by the way, he's all the time and many times through the scriptures said he's God. Has he not? Uh, when he says, I am, in John chapter 8, uh, they knew exactly what he was saying. Jesus claimed to be God. Don't listen to those who say he never claimed to be God. Go ahead. In that passage, he's pretty much saying, are you calling me God? Exactly. Yeah, if you're calling me good, are you calling me God? But there's something else here, too, that I want you to see. All right. He's pointing out that no one is good but who? OK. And saying that no one is good but God, he's telling them that no one is good except God. And therefore, no one can be good by doing good things. If there's no one good but God... There's no one who's good except God. Oh, but haven't we even ourselves used this term? I know my kid's lost, but he's really a good person. I know my neighbor, he really doesn't know the Lord, but he's a good guy. They're really, folks, we don't really understand our debt. I really believe even in the church, we don't even have a clue as to how much we owed. That 10,000 talents, that 200,000 year salary, a lot of us, even though we're saved, don't fully understand. I'm going to ask you to ask God to begin to open your eyes a little bit more each day. Help me to get a little bit bigger glimpse of what it is that I was, what it is that I've become, what it is you've given me. It'll affect how I live if I truly understand. You know Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there's no one righteous, no, not one. But then Jesus does something very interesting he tells this guy, when he says, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him to keep the commandments. Why was Jesus telling him to keep the commandments if you can't be good by doing righteousness? 
He wants him to understand that he can't. Very good, Glenn. You saved a whole lot of time of teaching because hopefully you've heard over the years through me. What is the purpose of the law? To show us we can't keep it. Once you realize I can't keep the law, the law has done its job. It points you to Christ. That's the whole point. So Jesus knows that this guy needs to understand his lostness because he still thinks he can be good to get to heaven. And Jesus says to him, keep the commandments. What does he say next in your story? What does the man say? Very telling. No, no, no. That's not what he says next. Which ones? Again, folks, this is why we need to read slower and meditate on it. We've heard this story a bunch and we all can quote it, but we miss stuff. The guy says, Jesus says, keep the commandments. And the guy says, which ones? In other words, there's some I, some I should keep and maybe some others that aren't as important. And by doing that, he do, he's showing that he doesn't understand that if you're going to be righteous by keeping the law, you have to keep what? All of them. Go to Galatians chapter 3. Oh, by the way, isn't our world full of people? who say this, I'm a pretty good person. I know I've done a couple of things, but I haven't killed anybody. You know, I'm pretty good. I've, I've kept most of them. Which ones? Listen to Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Galatians 3, verse 10 says this. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And do them. You want to be righteous before God by, uh, I'll pay you back everything? You have to pay back everything and be perfect. By the way, once you slip up, it's over. You're already incapable of being good and there's no one good. You got to understand that. Oh, like I said, the purpose of the law, Romans 3, 19 through 20, is to convict us of our sin. Now, interesting, though, when the guy says which ones, if you look at the passage back in Matthew chapter 19, you'll see that Jesus actually quotes from the Ten Commandments, kind of. He quotes the last six, actually the last five, and then he takes one from another part of the law. Let me show you. He quotes the, the, the last, the Ten Commandments is broken up into the first four, which is about God, and the last six, which are dealing with uh, our relationship to man. And so in our passage, he says, which ones? And, and, and Jesus says to him, well, you shall uh, not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. But he doesn't give the last one in the Ten Commandments, which is don't covet, but he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Go with me real quick to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19, verse 18. This is important, by the way, so stick with me here. You're going to see it jump out in just a second. Leviticus 19, verse 18. It says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So what Jesus does is he quotes from the last six, but he leaves off coveting and he adds in Leviticus 19, 18. By the way, he can do it. He wrote the book. He's allowed to move it around however he wants. But the young man now says what Becky pointed out. I've kept all these. If you, by the way, look at Mark and Luke's account, he even one of the accounts says that he says, since my youth, I've kept them since my youth. So what Jesus does is he gives them the law again 
in another form. When he tells him to sell everything that he has and give the money to the poor and then come follow me, what he's redoing is repackaging the law in another form, which I'm going to show you is in Matthew 22. Go to Matthew 22 and look at verses 35 through 40. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 35, uh, it says, And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So he quotes from the first one of the Ten Commandments. And then he quotes from where? I just gave it to you. Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, these two, love God with everything you have, and love your neighbor as yourself sums up the whole Ten Commandments, the whole law, the prophets, everything. Young man, you're able to keep the whole law. I personally know you're not, but you still think you can. I'll tell you what, this will be simple for you then if you're able to do that. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That's loving your neighbor as yourself and come follow me. Now the guy goes away confused, sorrowful. Let that sink in for a minute. If he goes away sorrowful, does he understand? Yes, he does understand. He's sad. He realizes that he's not willing. If this man wants to be considered perfect, and if you look at Matthew's account, Jesus even uses that word. If he wants to be considered perfect, he'll put God and others first and leave his love of his money to come follow Jesus. See, he wanted to follow Jesus, but have it be a part of his life. But he's still on the throne. He's still in charge. He gets determined which ones he keeps, which ones he doesn't keep, what his following, where his heart's going to be. And Jesus says, if you're going to come follow me, you actually have to be willing to forsake everything. And not only put me first, but every, I'm in everything and I'm in control of everything. And how you treat everybody else will be coming out of that. Does that sound like what he's been teaching in the forgiveness and everything? By the way, in John chapter 6, you don't have to go there. John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, the Jews come to him and say, um, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And this is what he says in verse 29. The work of God is this, to believe in the one that he sent. Again, for the sake of time, Luke 14, write it down, look at it later on. Luke 14, 25 through 33, Jesus says, if you're going to follow him, you deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow him and we are to forsake everything else. We're to hate mother and father. He has to be first. We're going to close tonight with a passage that we're going to probably pick back up with next week. Go to Matthew chapter 6 and verses 19 through 21 because it kind of will connect us with where we're leaving off tonight and where we're going to be heading toward future reward and all that. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, again, a very familiar passage, but look closely what it says here. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where was this man's heart? 
and his treasure. What was his treasure? Was it God and other people? It was worldly things. It was his possessions. He, went, he knew, I'm not willing to do that. By the way, I believe the Bible teaches very clearly that those who reject Christ know what they're doing. At some level, they understand because the Bible teaches that everybody's had their eyes opened. God's in some way, level, shape, or form revealed himself to all men, so all men are without excuse. He's going to judge all men's secrets through Jesus Christ. James chapter, uh, chapter uh, 2 says to receive the implanted word. No, not chapter 2, chapter 1. James chapter 1 says receive the implanted word which is able to save your soul. The seed falls on the soil. They hear it. They know. But many, many, many choose to reject it. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be. By the way, did you understand a little bit more now why I've given you your homework assignment? Because the more you start to really understand what it is you've been given in this salvation, your heart will move toward it because it'll become, you'll realize what treasure it is and your heart will follow. You won't have to work at loving God more. It's going to happen. That's why 2 Thessalonians 3.5 says this, may God, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the perseverance of Christ. Folks, too many of us have tried really hard to love God more. I'm going to tell you, let God show you what he's really given you. That's why Paul says, my prayer, after hearing of your faith and your love for each other, my prayer is that you'll have the eyes of your heart open, that you'll receive the spirit of revelation, that you'll know Christ better, that you'll understand the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of the love of the Lord, the hope to which he's called you, the glorious inheritance that we have, the mighty power that's available for us who believe. What he says is this, guys, you've been given a wonderful gift and you have no idea. I'm praying that God will open your eyes to it. And let me just tell you, the more that I've had the privilege during this downtime of studying and spending time, the more I started to realize I don't even fully grasp. I'm starting to have my eyes open to things that I've not seen, and I'm getting excited about it. And without trying, my heart is heading there. I don't want that for you as well. I love you. Thanks so much for coming. It's good to see your faces again, and I'll see you next week.